This week on Dirty Linen, we're continuing to talk about visa holders working in hospitality, but I just wanted to leap in because it's Sunday night, I'm in Melbourne, and we've had an announcement today that Melbourne's moving to stage four and that regional Victoria is moving to stage three. So before we get to today's conversation, which was recorded late last week, I just felt like I needed to check in with everybody, just see that you're all okay, because I am a swirl of feelings. We knew that the numbers were too high, that things couldn't go on as they were, and that something was going to happen. Part of me feels relieved because I had a concern that takeaway and delivery would be halted as it was in New Zealand stage four lockdown. So there's relief that we're still allowed to have takeaway and food delivery. Although there are going to be some tricky things to negotiate, people are not able to travel more than five kilometres to shop or for food. I believe that if you're delivering food to people, you'll be able to travel as far as you need to. But that's not quite clear. So I suppose when when the rules change, there's always a period of uncertainty and and doubt about how they're going to be applied. So I guess we're sort of in that swirl. One thing I'm feeling is just really drained and tired because this has been going on for a long time. Uh, this lockdown is going to take us into the middle of September and we've been we've been in this since March and it wasn't an easy summer before that. So if you're feeling drained, you're not the only one. If you're feeling tired and sad, then you're not the only one. Um, but I think Melbourne, we've got this where there's so much resolve, there's so much creativity, there's not as much energy as there was, but I reckon there's enough to get us through this. So let's be strong together. Let's do what needs to be done. Let's beat this thing. Let's eat some beautiful food along the way and let's have some great conversations to sustain us, to nourish us, to connect us and to give us some really practical tips and insights as well. So I'll hand you over to myself as we introduce today's conversation and I look forward to connecting with you through the week. If there really is a shortage of these professions and uh, we need to we need to improve um, that shortage, well then let's just bring in people but not tie them to individual venues. So, you know, allow people to emigrate to Australia as chefs, allow them to emigrate to Australia as restaurant managers and give them full working rights. I'm Danny Vallant and this is Dirty Linen, the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. We're continuing speaking about the issues around international workers, temporary visa holders in the Australian hospitality industry. And someone who's got a really interesting perspective on this whole space is Mike Rapaik, who's a sommelier, he's uh, an immunologist from way back, he's had a very interesting journey, but he's worked as a sommelier since 2013 at Nomad and Icebergs in Sydney, Samia in Paris, um, and Rockpool, Matilda and the Atlantic in Melbourne. So he's certainly worked around the traps. He's seen a lot. Uh, and Mike's been in touch with me a little bit over the COVID times uh, with his views around various things, but definitely the issue of temporary visa holders and has a particularly interesting perspective because he was one himself over in France. So Mike, thank you so much for coming on to Dirty Linen to have a chat. Danny, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's uh, put you in, let's introduce you a little bit to the audience. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to work in hospitality in the first place. So um, right, out, right out of, I uh, went to high school in Sydney. Um, I moved to Australia um, when I was nine from Eastern Europe. 
and uh, went to uni straight out of high school, uh, studied medical science, did my honours, uh, worked in research a little bit and, and kind of got disenchanted with the whole thing. And then I just started um, just started working in restaurants, didn't know anything about wine at the time, um, just waiting tables, you know, to pay my rent. Fell in love with wine, started learning about that, uh, did the wasted course eventually, um, and I've just been working in wine, uh, wine ever since, basically, just, and now I've got my own wine business. So what what attracted you about wine? What lured you in? I think uh, it's going to sound kind of weird, but I uh, I had really um, terrible sinusitis when I was younger, um, including when I was at uni, and I pretty much wasn't able to smell from the age of about 15 right up until I was about 24. And uh, I finally had surgery um, on my nose and I was able to smell, so I was able to actually enjoy wine. And... Uh, the thing that kind of probably drew me into wine is because it was just so uh, – maybe this was the scientific part of me that it was just so technical and um, there was so much to learn and it was all somehow interconnected and it was just this spider web of regions and grape varieties and soil types and producers and uh, it's really fascinating world to explore and uh, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what made me uh, – get into it. And uh, also, I, I enjoy drinking. So that helps. <laughs> that is such a great answer. I just love it. Um, it's almost, it, you know what it made me think of it, when I, a long time ago, when I took my grandma to the hospital to get her cataracts removed um, and I picked her up and drove her home afterwards and she could just see so much better than when she went in. And it was um, just like, you could just see it's just the way her expressions and how she was like shading her eyes when the sun glinted off the tram tracks. And it was just like the world was so bright for her again. And it just reminds that makes me think of that when you talk about suddenly being able to smell wine. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that, that, that that's a pretty cool story about your grandma. Yeah, I can I can imagine, you know, just kind of a, a sense that has been so dulled for a person for a long time. Suddenly it's there and you just kind of it's just so exciting. I'm sure she, you know, loved, you know, watching birds or, you know, anything like that. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's re- it really great. She's also my hero um, because she died. Um, she was just about to turn 101 when she died, and she ha- um, spread butter an inch thick on every slice of bread. So um, that's why I know butter's a health food. <laughs> Whenever I have a lot of butter, which is every time I have butter, I think of my grandma. So yeah, she's great. Um, good old Grandma Joe. Anyway, tangent. Um, so Mike. You've, you're an analytical person, you know, you're a scientist by background and you, um, you, you seem to look at things in quite an analytical way. So tell me what you've noticed in the hospitality industry around, particularly around this issue of temporary visa holders. Um, well, look, okay, so um, the, the easiest way for me to kind of explain this, uh, and, and, and this is kind of me talking about the industry the way it was before the industry the way it was before COVID and the way that unless much is done is probably going to be post COVID as well. I mean during COVID everything's just kind of gone to shit. So it's it's hard to kind of get much of a bead on what's happening with visa holders there, except that they've basically just been left out of the loop um, by the government. Um, I think I can understand why the government has done this, um, especially considering it's a coalition government. I don't particularly approve of it. But um, I can you know, but like this is just a really uh, special situation. It's more, um, I think what you're asking me, it's more kind of the way I viewed this before uh, COVID. And this is um, the more time I've spent in the industry, the more I've seen that basically we had um, this massive over-reliance um, on temporary visa holders 
who basically break down into three main groups. And this is uh, international students, working holiday uh, visa holders, and uh, sponsored um, sponsored visa holders. Um, and I really noticed that this what we didn't have this over reliance on them for any kind of good reason. So um, it's wonderful to hire people, you know, for diversity or because, you know, you have an Italian restaurant and you'd like to have some Italian stuff. But I noticed that this was basically um, we were over relying on them because uh, the profit margins were getting worse and worse in our industry. And uh, basically we were over relying on them because they are inherently more exploitable. Each visa category is inherently exploitable for its own reasons. Would you want to talk through some of the different categories of visa holders and why and how you think they're exploited particularly? Uh, Sure. Okay. Um, All right. Well, I'll start with uh, working holiday visa, right? So uh, the working holiday visa program in Australia, we essentially, um, we've got bilateral uh, agreements with a whole bunch of countries, you know, I think it's more than 20 at this point, um, where basically the whole idea behind it is that young people um, from these various countries, whether it be France or the UK or Spain or what have you, you know, they're meant to come to Australia, sort of, you know, share, you know, share language, food, culture, good times, you know, what have you, work sort of to get by during that period of time. And that Australians in the meantime should go to these countries as well, you know, in order to, in order to do the same, you know, share our culture and sort of go over there and explore these countries and, you know, learn about, learn about them. Um, and to a degree, this does happen. Um, but this is really not very bilateral. So for the most part, there are way more working holiday visa holders from other countries coming to Australia than Australia is going over, Australians going over there. Um, in some, it's kind of mutual, like with the UK. Um, but for example, when I went to France, um, around 400 Australians per year were going to France on working holiday visas and about 30,000 French were coming to Australia. So that's a difference of almost 100 to 1. Yeah, so it's like it's like a huge difference. A bit out of balance. A, a bit, yeah. I mean, so like, the, but this this isn't inherently an issue. You know, it's fine. It's okay to have a lot of people over. Um, the only problem kind of gets is the fact that working holiday visa holders, by definition, you know, they're new to the country. You know, so they don't know what the rules are in terms of what they're entitled to here. They don't know um, what the reputation of the employers they're applying at are. Um, they don't really have networks here in order to understand this and in order to um, learn this and then once they've basically but once they they get a job even if they feel like they're exploited even if they feel like they're mistreated or like maybe they should be getting paid a bit better or getting better staff meals or whatever they just kind of go well i'm only allowed to work here for six months anyway i've already blown a few you know weeks of money they're pretty cash strapped when they arrive for the most part um so just go you know i'm just going to stick this out and um, then i'm going to go somewhere else or you know i'm going to travel up to Cairns or, or what have you, you know, they sort of go, this is short term. So they're not really invested in, you know, fighting for, you know, any kind of, you know, social economic justice, you know, while they're here thinking, oh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of just passing through, right? It's a short term vibe. And just for, just for people who don't understand the, or don't know the rules yet. So the, the rules with working holiday visa holders is that they can only work in one venue for six months. That's then they're allowed to stay for a year. They can extend that for another year, but to do so, they need to go and work in the region. So there are a lot of our fruit pickers and, um, yeah, seasonal workers in, in, um, in the regions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh yeah. Like, I mean, fruit pickers, that's, that's another, that's another situation where like basically these people just generally get treated horribly, um, when they are fruit pickers. 
that's that's another story. I mean, I've heard some bad stories. Yeah, that's another story. So let's move on to international students because they're probably, in terms of the numbers, they're probably the biggest. Yeah. So international students. Um, so basically, international students. Uh, Australia is interested in bringing international students in for the most part because it's it's an export. Um, they're ba- they're, this is why the Australian government's interested. I mean, personally, when I went to uni, I loved having international students around again for the cultural exchange. It was great. Um, but they're basically, um, Australia views it as an export. Um, these students pay much higher fees for degrees and, um, and what have you. And, you know, they're not entitled to basically Centrelink while they're here. While you know, I, I got by on Centrelink when I was at uni. So, um, alongside with working. So that's basically why Australia brings in so many international students. Now, before what used to be the case, international students, you had international students who basically, you know, came from relatively rich families from overseas. They wanted to study at our sandstone universities like ANU or UCID or U Melbourne. And, um, you know, they had rich families who paid for their fees, paid for their living expenses. And if these students did work, you know, it was kind of ancillary to their experience, right? Um, what's happening more and more is that students aren't so much the percentage of students studying at these sandstone universities who have wealthy families or have their own personal wealth to back them up. This is getting lower. And the number of students who are basically doing second and third rate courses um, that are offered basically exclusively to national students um, is going up. And these students, for the most part, are using this not because they care about getting whatever, you know, third-rate diploma they're studying, they could do get a much better diploma at home. They're basically doing it so they have a ticket to come to Australia. And they're often lied to. And people tell them, oh, you know, go over there and, you know, you'll you'll get your you'll get your diploma and then you'll get a job and then you'll, you know, be able to live in Australia, bring your family over and what have you. And this doesn't happen as often, but during the time that they are here, they're usually exploited terribly. And this is because you know, they can't afford to pay for their student fees um, out of the 20 hours a week they're allowed to work. Sorry, Mike, I was just going to just gonna leap in just to explain that when you say they're lied to, are you, you're saying that that's often by the educational institutions or the agents that work for these um, educational institutions in Australia? Oh, the agents. The agents, the, the, the institutions try to keep their hands clean as much as they can. But uh, the agents generally don't do that. And, uh, and look, these institutions, they will often, um, like what happens with a lot of working holiday visa holders, like friends that I have, um, their working holiday visa runs out. They were hoping to move to Australia. They didn't manage to find a sponsor. And then they just sign up for one of these international, um, like in, in one of these courses. And a lot of these courses are basically, you know, walk in, sign your name, walk out. You know, they're essentially buying a visa. Um, and then like basically instead of coming to Australia to study, you know, and get a university degree, they're basically you know, just using this as a way to move over, which, you know, I understand that people want to move here, but that's not using the visa the way it's supposed to be used. And then what happens is, you know, they can't live on 20 hours a week. That's ridiculous, especially not pay these fees. And, you know, some even want to send money back to their families um, if they come from third world countries. So, you know, they get forced into working for cash, you know, and they will do gig economy jobs. Um, they, you know, work for, you know, $13, $12 an hour as dishwashers, you know, maybe a little bit more if they're, you know, waiters in cafes and things like that. And uh, this, is, this is rife. And um, that's the reason why they get exploited terribly. They're basically, you know, illegal workers who are, you know, then unable to complain because, you know, they're already doing what they're not supposed to be doing. And uh, the last category is sponsored workers. So they're kind of interesting. So the, the, th- the thing is, ostensibly, when you think of um, a sponsored worker, especially in hospitality in Australia, we kind of see it as, oh, there's a skill shortage. And if we think of that, we go, oh, this is someone who's 
you know, it's like someone who's amazing, you know, someone who's worked in three Michelin star restaurants in France or, you know, someone who's, you know, like a sushi master from Japan or, you know, like an amazing chef from Turkey or something like that, you know, like something that you really can't find here. Um, and, you know, some, and basically an international talent scout has found this person and lured them to Australia, right, and sponsored them. This virtually never happens. I mean, it happens occasionally. Um, I, I know cases where it's happened. But for the most part, the pathway here is someone comes over on a working holiday visa um, or a student visa. They work in a restaurant. Um, you know, they're a great worker. The owner likes them and goes, you know what, I want to keep this person. And basically they – they sponsor them and they sponsor them as a manager, you know, or something like that. Right. And uh, at this point, look, there are some owners that, um, you know, treat these workers well. And, you know, they really appreciate it that this person is now going to work for them for four years. And, you know, they keep their end of the bargain and don't overwork them and stuff. Uh, generally, though, they uh, at the very least will be doing lots of unpaid overtime. Um, beyond that, oftentimes these workers are not even sponsored because they have some kind of unique talent. Um, you know, lots of people can be managers. Um, good managers are few and far between, but you know, lots of people are able to do this job or be trained to do it, right? Um, it's usually these people, you know, are sponsored for their loyalty. You know, the owner likes them, they're loyal, they sort of don't complain, they do what, they do what, what they're asked. You know, they work extra hours without, you know, having, complaining about it. They've got a vested interest to stay with the business now for four years. Um, and also they need to stay in good relations with the, um, with the owner for four years because at the end of that, pretty much almost all of these workers want to get a PR. Even though this is meant to be a temporary skill shortage visa, nobody really sees it like that. Everyone sees this as a pathway to, you know, PR and then citizenship. And then what ends up happening is your your employer has to, at the end, use the employer nomination scheme in order to get you that PR. That's the easiest way to get a PR at the end. So you really want to stay in your employer's good graces in order to get them to do that. So when they go, hey, you're going to have to come in on the seventh, you know, going to have to work six or seven days this week, you go, yeah, cool. You know, instead of saying, hey, you know what, my contract says I'm meant to be doing 38 hours. I've already done 60. What the fuck? I mean, so – which is what an Australian manager might do, you know. <laughs> so there are two ways that sponsored there are two ways that sponsored workers are, are tied to the employer. The first is that they're only allowed to work for that employer, the employer that sponsored them. And then the second one is that they are that as you say the easiest way for them to work towards permanent residency is through the employer that has sponsored them and to um, transition to a different visa uh, on, and be on a pathway to permanent residency. So I mean, what in your experience, what do what's the what are, what are the relationships like between Australian workers and overseas sponsored workers? Um, if it seems like if they're the way you're you're explaining it, it's like there are two tiers of um, of relationship between the employee and the employer. The relationship between um, so what like within the same restaurant? If there's a sponsored worker in Australia, well, are they resented? I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, are they resented? Are they looked down upon? Is it just how things are? No, I don't think they're resented. Um, uh, I, no, I, I, don't, I don't think they're resented. Um, not at all. I mean, I think, you know, you, they, they, they're judged as the people they are, you know. So if they're, if they're a good manager or a good person, you know, they judge that way. Um, I think... No, no, I, I don't think. I don't, I don't think basically workers see them, see them as an issue. I mean, this is more... This is more a systemic problem, right? So if you are, for example, a manager in a, in a restaurant, right, and you're Australian, 
and you're being asked to work, you know, the 60 hours a week that like the last restaurant I worked at, you know, every every manager was sponsored. There wasn't a single Australian um, or, or a single just non-sponsored person, basically. And um, so you get asked to work, you know, 60 hours a week like everyone else is. And you go, hey, listen, I've got a 38-hour contract. You know, can we my, – my week's not working for me. And then basically you go, well, look, everyone else is working 60 hours. You know, what makes you so special? And you sort of think, well, I don't want to be special. I just want to work the way my contract said, the, the contract that we agreed on. And, you know, the problem is everyone else is kind of taking it lying down and therefore it's very difficult for you to challenge you know, challenge this situation because if other people are willing to be exploited, then you go, you go, okay, well, either I do what they do or I, you know, go do something else. And that's what happens a lot. Mm. But what about, are you saying as another sponsored worker or are you saying as an Australian that's working alongside the sponsored workers? As an Australian working alongside the sponsored workers. All right. So the, okay. So the fact that the sponsored workers are in this position also affects the Australian workers. They also feel obliged to do, to work over the hours. It becomes the status quo. Essentially, it it just it just becomes it becomes a status quo. This becomes the job that is offered, well, under these circumstances. Mm. And this is look. I mean, there are certain hoops that employees have to jump through in order to get sponsor someone, but they're not they're not much, you know, compared to what you get. You know, you have to advertise the job. Okay, most places are advertising jobs nonstop anyway. All they need to do is just modify them a little bit, and and for this to be reasonable proof to immigration that you've advertised that, right? You don't have to show who applied. You don't have to go to Centrelink and, you know, trial people who are already on the dole. You don't have to do anything. You basically just have to advertise it and that's it, right? You have to pay certain fees. Um, but for the most part, oftentimes these fees are passed on to the worker um, in one way or another. Basically, they go, hey, look, you're going to have to pay this. You're going to have to pay that. Or, you know, I've seen some nicer employees go, hey, I'll pay your fees. And then if you stick it out till the end, I'll give you the money back. You know, I've seen I've seen those situations, and then I've seen employees just straight up pay it. Though that's generally for restaurant managers and stuff. It's for higher end positions. Um, and then basically, finally, you have to give them a minimum salary, which employees that use sponsored workers a lot will, you know, say, "Oh, this is above the award." It's fifty four thousand. I mean, you want like if someone offered me fifty four grand to be a manager in a restaurant or be a sommelier in a restaurant, um, I would tell them no way. I mean, not even close. Like that's that's a weighted salary, you know. So that's basically that's not much, you know. So essentially, you're getting someone who's going to for fifty four grand, who's going to be with you for four years, who's going to work all the overtime you tell them, cop all the abuse you throw their way, and essentially do it with a smile because at the end of those four years, you know, they're going to be coming to you to sponsor to basically um, nominate them for um, a PR. So you know, the employers obviously see this as a very good deal. And, you know, you don't have, um, they don't have this leverage over Australian workers. So obviously this makes, you know, sponsoring someone far more attractive than, you know, hiring an Australian being like, oh, I'm going to have to give you a salary that you're happy with. And, you know, I might have to give you some incentives to stay, you know, after a year or two. And, you know, I might have to, you know, actually treat you well. Otherwise you'll, you know, tell me to stuff myself or whatever. You know, it's, a, it's that, that's, that's the reality. It's just economics. Well, the picture you're painting, the picture you're painting is pretty dire. <laughs> like it just, it's just, not great. It sounds like these bosses, these bosses are unscrupulous. They're putting pressure on people to behave illegally. So it's it's illegal for an employer to ask an, a sponsored employee to pay um, the fees that are due by the employer. That's that's illegal. So you're saying that they're unscrupulous. They're acting illegally. Um, they're exploiting people um 
it just doesn't sound like a very appealing industry to work in, Mike. Well, here's the interesting thing. Um, you say the employers aren't scrupulous, but oftentimes um, it's basically the workers, these workers could like, you know, if a worker comes up um, and wants to get sponsored, you know, they're at the at the arse end of their second year visa, they haven't found a sponsor yet and they want to stay in Australia, you know, if they like it here for whatever reason, right? You know, they go to an employer and they say, hey, can you sponsor me? And the employer goes, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of fees. And then this person goes, I'll pay the fees. Okay, what do you do as an employer? I mean, you know, you can say, oh, that's illegal. And they go, I don't care if it's illegal. I want to stay. Sponsor me. I'm agreeing to this. This is what I want. You know, Um, the problem is not the employers. I don't blame individual employers. You know, I don't I don't I don't blame anybody for trying to trying to survive in this industry. I don't blame anybody for trying to make money. I blame the market that we have created that is now making them behave this way. So I think it's a problem that we are making this possible, not that people are taking advantage of it once it already is possible. That's sort of the distinction I would draw there. Yeah, very interesting. All right, well, let's fix it. What do we do? Give me some solutions. All right. Well, I mean, the, 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 okay. Well, first of all, let me let, 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 let me let me just draw a little contrast for you. Um, I'll draw a little contrast as to how, for example, how the situation was different in France. You know, I mean, you mentioned I did actually work in France. I was a working holiday visa holder over there, and um, I was even offered sponsorship actually while I was in France. So I'll just I'll just tell you a little bit how I felt things were different over there. Well, first of all. The restaurant that I worked at, I worked in Saint-Germain, which was in central Paris. It's a very touristy area. It's very important that all your wait staff speak English there. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I got the job. But uh, And I also had good experience and I spoke a bit of French, but they kind of forgave me for my French not being perfect. Um, but I was the only working holiday visa holder in the whole place. Anyway, everyone else, about half of them were French. And then the remaining half were, um, you know, a mix of different EU nationalities, right? So... That that was the first thing. So basically, um, they did not really need temporary visa holders at all. Everybody there was permanent. Um, everyone there was on a full-time job, a full-time salary. Um, people had been there for a few years. That was the first thing, right? Um, then the other thing that I found that was different when a different place wanted to sponsor me was um, it was a bigger group. And they had several venues and they pretty much offered me sponsorship right in the room. You know, they saw you've got a lot of sommelier experience on and so forth. But there was a huge shortage of sommeliers in Paris. You know, they were they were literally on the um, list of professions where basically I barely even needed a sponsor. I could have just emigrated there just for being a sommelier, right, at the time. Oh, wow. And, okay. you know, they wanted to – yeah, yeah, oh yeah, because there was a shortage. I mean, well, look, I mean, they produce a lot of sommeliers, but, you know, pretty much every restaurant over there wants to have a sommelier, right? Um, so it's not as easy. So yeah, I could have just gone over there for being a SOM. Um, but basically they wanted to sponsor me because, you know, again, they wanted a bit of security, you know, they were like, you know, you could just come over, but you know, this way you're kind of going to stick with us. And, you know, and the guy was really trying to sell me and saying, Hey, you know, like, you know, I'll sponsor you, be a SOM with us for a year. Then you can be a head SOM after that. And, you know, so on and so forth. But the funny thing was you look at all the sommeliers in this group, all of them were French. Every single one was French. I would have been the only non-French sommelier in the whole place. So while they wanted to sponsor me, they weren't relying upon sponsorships just to operate, right? And then there was one other interesting thing that I found in Paris. The fact that um, prices were incredibly different from uh, one venue to another. So, for example, a coffee at the uh, my most local little bistro was like I think one euro or one euro fifty. 
at the time. And then a two Michelin star restaurant that I went to, La Tour d'Argent, um, coffee was 12 euros. It was insane. I mean, that would be the equivalent of, at the moment here, a coffee at a cafe is what, three, four bucks? That would be the equivalent of paying $30 for your coffee at a restaurant. Yeah. Because it's because it's amazing service. You're you want to be good. Yeah. Well, the, the coffee's fine. I mean, but, you know, it's more like you're in this beautiful, elegant ballroom. I mean, like, you know, you want to stand up. You know, someone's there to pull your chair out. I mean, you know, your wine is always at the perfect level. You know, every, everything's just amazing, right? You know, same as like mains and entrees and stuff. You go to you go to a bistro in Paris, you know, you can get like for lunch, entree main dessert probably for like, you know, 20 euros or something, right? You go again to La Tour d'Argent, you know, you've got entrees that are 70 euros. I mean, I had an entree that was 100, like really poured a lot of money to this place. You know, I had an entree that was 130. It was Langostein, right? 130 euros. You know, that's like $200. I mean, it's, it's a joke. I mean, main courses started at 100, you know, desserts were 40 euros, you know, and like, whereas a dessert at my local was like four euros, you know, so the difference was like 10 to one and, and there was everything in between. So you could find, you know, places that were all the way along that spectrum. So I'm talking about the cheapest and the most expensive, but in Australia, that doesn't exist. You know, you want to go to, you want to go to your local pub where, you know, you order from the bar and, you know, your little buzzer goes off and you go and pick up your, pick up your burger and you pick and your, your steak or whatever, and you grab your cutler and your way back and it's condiments and whatever. I mean, it's going to cost you 20 bucks. You know, like, yeah, it's probably on a steak night, actually. And then you want to go to, you know, a fantastic, you know, restaurant and have a steak there. It's going to be like 50 bucks. And you're going to be looking at a steak being like, oh, my God, $50. How expensive was that? You know, whereas in realistically, if you're going to go to a really fine dining, amazing restaurant, a steak should probably be 150 bucks. <laughs> you know, like, because like, you yeah. should be paying for this ambiance, for the prime location, for the heaps of service, for the knowledge of the staff and everything. In Australia, we're just not willing to pay for that. So if you want to ask me the key way that we can fix this, it's to make venues more profitable. And we just need to be realistic about what we can offer at which price point. So if people want to have amazing service with really knowledgeable staff and you know things like that, well, that costs a lot of money. And that's going to have to be reflected in what they're actually buying. I mean, and the, the thing is at the moment, um, I'll actually give you some solutions. So first of all, um, we have way too many venues in Melbourne in particular. I mean, essentially, you look at you look at most venues, even before COVID, most places were not full except maybe on a Friday or a Saturday night. There were a few places that were pumping, absolutely. But, you know, you walk down any street, you walk down Chapel Street, Ligon Street, you're going to the CBD for the most part. Wednesday night, things were pretty dead, you know, and the more dead a restaurant is, the lower its profit margins get. You know, people always say, oh, it's 1% or whatever. Well, no, it's 1% if you're dead half the week. I mean, if you're basically turning tables every single night, your profit margin is going to be way higher. I mean, that's the first thing. So, look, I mean, and the only reason some of these venues are able to stay open is because, you know, they're in debt, they're trading water, um, they're basically, yeah, exactly, like hiring staff like this, not doing any training, you know, not paying people overtime, paying the bare minimum award wage if they're paying that at all. And, you know, the standards are slipping. I mean... You know, so in order to improve that, we just need to shut off basically the tap that allows these venues to keep trading water like this and just let them fail. And look, uh, this is hard to say because, you know, you're killing someone's dream. You know, someone's like, oh, I wanted to open a restaurant. I want to be really successful. And now you're saying that I need to close. Yeah, look, I mean, that's I, I don't know what to tell you, except that, you know, it's that's the case. So. So here's the thing, um, ways that we can do this. So as far as international workers go, I do, I do 
have a couple of um, a couple of suggestions. So first of all, instead of offering sponsorships through restaurants for generic jobs, like oh, I'm sponsoring a manager or a chef, right? Um, if there really is a shortage of these professions and uh, we need to we need to improve um, that shortage, well then let's just bring in people, but not tie them to individual venues. So you know, allow people to emigrate to Australia as chefs, allow them to emigrate to Australia as restaurant managers, and give them full working rights. You know, maybe you know for the mm-hmm. first several years, you know, don't let them go on the dole or whatever, but and maybe say, oh, you can only work as a chef if you're coming over as a chef. I mean, Japan has a similar um, immigration policy, um, but then don't tie them to venues. You know, give them full working rights and basically have they're not as beholden to an employer. They're not beholden to anybody. So basically, you know, like they see themselves as equals. You know, to to Australians. You know, if an employer treats them like shit, they can leave. You know, that's the first thing. Um, secondly, if we do want to do sponsorships, then we should really reduce them to like extremely unique roles. You know, so basically, if you've got a Japanese restaurant, you want to bring over a, you know, amazing sushi master from Japan or a soba master or something. If you're opening an American restaurant, you want to bring over a sommelier from the US, you know, who knows American wine, like, you know, the back of a hand or something. That's fine. Um I want a, an, an assistant supervisor for my, you know, wine bar. No, sorry. Like, you know, you need to you need to hire someone who's already in the current labor pool, and you need to train them up. Or you can lobby the government to, you know, help with training or what have you. But, you know, we need to we need to close that off. Um, and as for student visas, um, again, like you know, all of these um, all, all of these basically um, courses being available to people where. You know, they're using these courses are being used essentially to, you know, give people a migration pool, uh, migration um, route to come here. That needs to be stopped. So we need to basically get to a point where it's like, okay, we can have international students, but only at universities and only for bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, PhDs, things like that. So people who are genuinely coming over to study a high, deg- like a high end degree, that's great. Um, if you want to study, I don't know some kind of diploma in management look you can you can you can get that diploma online or you can probably get it you know in your home country or what have you you know that's not nobody comes over here so they can get some sort of poultry diploma like that they come over because they want to live here i mean and look that's great but um you know like unfortunately this leaves the door open for exploitation and finally for working holiday visas um we need to look at you know this being the cultural exchange that it's meant to be so we need to look at how many Australians are interested in going to some of these countries, maybe encourage them to go. That's fine. But then we need to look at how many people are coming over and, you know, have it be somewhat close. So a situation where 400 Aussies are going to France and 30,000 French are coming to Australia, that's that's just silly. You know, it should be if there's 400 Australians, it should be maybe a couple of thousand, you know, French, you know, because they have a larger population. I mean, you know, we have, for example, a... Um, Working holiday visa agreement with Greece. Okay, it's for 500, but how many Australians go to Greece for working holidays? You know, I'd be stunned if it was, you know, more than 10. I mean, or, you know, things like that. Or, or maybe they do, maybe they work on the islands, I'm not sure. But I mean, there are, you know, lots of countries where basically it's like Australians are not going over there to work, and there are lots of people coming over here. And then once this basically exploitable labor pool, is depleted and it's gone. And this is probably actually ironically enough going to happen due to COVID. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, you know, once it's actually depleted, then the then the restaurants basically and the venues here have to compete for the staff that are available. If you want good staff, 
you know, you can either train them, you know, basically, and then have them be good that way. And if you want to keep these trained staff, you have to give them incentives. Say, look, stick with me for a year, I'll give you a bonus. You know, for every year you stay, that bonus percentage will be higher. You know, whatever, find find ways to do it, you know, or, um, you know, offer to pay more. And, you know, and try and offer to pay more in order to get staff that are already, you know, um, already experienced, you know, already skilled. Um, and then, look, lots of venues right now will go, well, I, I can't I can't afford to can't afford to pay more. I'm barely, barely making ends meet as it is. Yep, that's what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, well, to those people, all I can say is I don't know what to tell you except that, you know, maybe your venue does not, should not exist. I mean, you know, if you're unable to, you know, staff your venue with basically the labor that is available, then you're not economically viable. I mean, you need to increase your prices or if you think that you can't, well, then you just need to close up shop. I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that's... um. That's the situation. If we don't do this, we're basically just going to have an industry where we're just a guest worker nation. You know, basically citizens and residents don't work in this industry. Foreigners do. It's just viewed as some kind of other. There is no respect for there's no respect for the profession. There is rife exploitation. And we just kind of accept it. You know, this is what happens in Dubai, for example. You know, they kind of have their citizenry who basically don't have to work in these jobs and then they just import people and treat them like shit. And I don't want that. You know, I don't I don't want to work in a place where there's anybody who is being exploited. And I want to work in hospitality, you know, and I think that it is a good profession and it is a kind profession and it is a noble profession. And we should be able to work in these jobs not as casuals but we should have full-time jobs and we should have holidays and we should have good salaries with which we can buy homes preferably somewhat close to where we live and send out and have children and send our kids to school and you know we should have that and at the moment that's just not possible and it's you know driving you know the few skilled people that were in the industry out to do other things and it's basically replacing them with, you know, whomever whomever they can exploit. And that's just, that's a race to the bottom. And I don't want to have a race to the bottom in hospitality. I want to have a race to the top. Wow, Mike. It's, this is obviously an issue that you, you've thought a lot about and, and you've, you've, uh, you've seen, yeah, a lot of different permutations of uh, use and abuse of um, the temporary visa worker system in your time working in the industry in Australia and you've seen many different things when you've been working in France and Canada as well. I think you worked for a while as well. So you definitely have a really interesting perspective um, and it's amazing that you've got a sense of uh, some of the problems but also have a whole bunch of solutions. And it's uh, interesting and, I mean, it's it's like a global pandemic uh, <laughs> seems to be uh, offering an opportunity for a bit of a reset. Um, and, I mean, do, well, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because it's obviously causing so many people so much pain and, I mean, it's, it's just it's a mess and it's going to be, it is, it is so tough and it's especially tough for um, visa workers that are here now and it's obviously super tough for business owners. Um, but, I mean, I like the idea of coming out the other side of this with an industry where people are better paid, where diversity is um, respected and not an opportunity to um, to treat people worse than um, people who just happen to be born here or have different residency status here. So, I mean, yeah, there's definitely... Oh, my God. I felt I felt so celebrated. 
uh, when I was in France. I felt so celebrated when I was when I was over there. Everyone was so excited. Oh my God, you're an Australian. You know what's Australia like? You know all this stuff. It was it was wonderful. But like, you know, if Australians made up like a huge portion of um you know the local market and were working for, and you were basically being exploited and setting that standard, I'm sure I wouldn't have been as welcomed. Yeah, maybe if if you were pulling beers in a pub in London, you might not have felt as unique and and special and celebrated. And as a curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I did live in the UK, actually, when I was much younger. And I did actually work there, but I worked in a bit of a rural part. So I was a curiosity there as well. Yeah, right. I'm sure they had a lot of questions about kangaroos hopping down the main street. Um, and neighbours. <laughs> yeah. So, Mike, tell, just tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. And, um, and I think you've got a, a kind offer for our listeners. Oh, yeah. Um, so at the moment, actually, uh, well, I, I, this has been in the works for a little while, but um, I actually uh, started an online uh, an online wine business, um, which is, uh, so it's an online wine club for health conscious drinkers. So it's, uh, it's called Feravina. And uh, we basically uh, only select 100% natural wines, which are lower in alcohol, um, low in sulfur, um, sugar-free, vegan, paleo-friendly, all that good stuff. So people who are interested in uh, living a health-conscious lifestyle but still want to have a glass of wine, we're the business for them. But, um, you know, that can all be found on our website. Uh, what I was going to say is, um, yeah, the current situation, uh, we didn't really talk about the current situation for visa workers all that much. And uh, that is because, yeah, it's it's an absolute shit show. And to be honest with you, I've got a lot of um, a lot of friends in that situation, you know, who have basically lost jobs, uh, can't get JobKeeper, can't get JobSeeker. A lot of them can't leave because they're sponsored and they don't know when the hell they'll be able to get back, even if they do leave. Um, and I mean, I, I, I feel awful for them. And uh, I um, I really appreciate what people like you are doing. You know, with your uh, with your soup project and uh, with your advocacy for them, and uh, look, I, I I don't know if we'll be able to basically get the government to help them out. I have reason to believe that they, you know, are going to be pretty staunch in their refusal. But um, you know, it's it's always it's always worth trying. And um, I, but in the meantime, um, they do deserve help, right? And uh, that doesn't go against anything that I've said. You know, I want everybody to, you know, be prosperous and be happy and healthy and you know at the moment these people are in a really you know terrible situation so um my business has just started but basically any of the um i know you know you're a big advocate for uh overseas workers and um i know that other um people who run you know different charities and different programs for these workers now probably listen to your podcast so if anybody wants to um please reach out to me and um, I'm more than happy to partner up with pretty much any charity that is working for uh, overseas hospital workers in Australia, in Melbourne, and uh, basically work out a scheme where, you know, they, um, you know, plug my, uh, plug my business a little bit and I will happily donate from every, uh, every case sold. I will donate 10, 20 bucks. We can work out the details, but um, yeah, um, I just, essentially that's at the moment, there's not a lot of business for me. So you know, I can't just sort of straight up donate all that much. But, you know, if people kind of want to get the word out and, uh, you know, for every case I sell, I'm more than happy to donate. Well, pretty much my, you know, that, that that's pretty much half my profits once you work in a discount. And, uh, yeah, I'm willing to give this to, um, to these charities and help these people through. I think, yeah, and hopefully, you know, people will want to take me up on that. 
Thanks, Mike. Well, so if anyone wants to check out ferravena.com, is that right? Ferravena.com? .com.au. We're, we're keeping it local. Sorry, ferravena.com.au and um, get in touch with Mike and have a chat and check out his wines while you're there. Mike, uh, thank you so much for your perspective. Um, yeah, you're a bit of a you're, – you're a thinker, you're a provocateur and uh, you've certainly seen the industry from, uh, yeah, m- many different aspects and inside and out. So thanks so much for sharing your perspective today on Dirty Linen. Danny, thanks so much for, uh, thanks so much for having me on and, uh, you know, having this conversation. You know, I think it's an important one to have. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.